friends, welcome to another edition of our Why on Earth Community Stewardship and Sustainability Series. And I am so happy and grateful that today we have the opportunity to speak a bit with Reverend M. Kalani Sousa from the Big Island of Hawaii, uh, where he is, uh, get this, he is a permaculturist, a philosopher, a musician, a poet, a priest, a producer, an educator. You might say he is a, an activated human being. And uh, Kalani, it is such a pleasure to be talking with you today. I'm, I'm so excited we have the opportunity to share some of your work and some of your important messaging with our Why on Earth audience. And uh, welcome uh, to our show. Thank you, thank you so much. I. You know, it's a pleasure, it's an honor, Aaron, to be going face-to-face -face like this. You know, we've spoken mostly on emails for the last year or so, which has been fabulous, but this is much better. Uh, word of caution, my grandfather said to me, you know, boy, if you do your job correctly, no one will remember you were here. They'll think that they did it for themselves. And so... You know, and to that effect, yeah, you know, just call me Kalani and, and I mostly uh, have my capacity set for me through the auspices of fine people like these young folks here and who work and, and, and try hard to get things. We'll get back to these, some of the students and some of the folks that actually make me look good. So uh, it's less about what my capacity is and more about me just being a head cheerleader. You bet, well that, that's so appreciated. And uh, I'll mention too for our, for our viewers and our listeners that uh, you are also a, a certified FEMA instructor. You work with the University of Hawaii National Disaster Training Center. You do work as a cultural competency consultant for NOAA, that's the National Oceanic and uh, Atmospheric Agency, I believe, Pacific Services Center. and. Uh, you also work um, with adaptation sponsored by the National Center for Atmospheric Research, NCAR, um, which is, of course, located right here in Boulder, Colorado, where I'm uh, currently uh, sitting. Uh, and it's so amazing, Kalani, to get a, a sense of the many, many networks that you're a part of, some with scientists, some with educators, a variety of community members, indigenous peoples, and perhaps you could speak to us a little bit about this uh, incredible woven web work uh, that you find yourself a part of. Yeah, yeah. And, and thanks for that acknowledgement. You know, I don't think people recognize very often the importance of bridge building and focusing on the relationships between people that make things possible. And uh, I think that's been sort of the focus for the last 40 years. How do we build these pathways for possibility? And it does happen because we're able to see everyone's place at the table. Now, uh, a friend of mine, Robert Goff, Bob Goff, he passed away just last year as a great community leader. Uh, he used to say to me, you know, Kalani, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. 
So uh, I try to encourage the people we work with to not only do everything they need to do to get themselves to the table, but to ensure quality control by assuring that all others are allowed at the table. And in particular, I think if we don't see something that is 180 degrees from us when we're contemplating a decision or a, um, a route, a choice of action, we should be able to see clearly the direct opposite impact that we intend, what might be the consequence of our actions. And until we see that 180 degree position, I think it would be erroneous of us to make that decision or move forward. Or as my grandfather would say, you know, if you don't see the shadow of something, you haven't seen it all. So make sure you see the shadow of something so you have the clarity of decision. Go ahead with the decision you need to make, but be aware of the surround, of the consequences. This kind of fundamental understanding of people, of groups of people, of the need for all of us to be participating together, I think it comes from the Polynesian perspective of the planet as a canoe. And we know from long distance voyaging, the crew on the canoe, everybody's important. We may not all see eye to eye, but everybody's got a vested interest in a good outcome. I'm hoping that there aren't people on our planet that participate with the idea that they think a good outcome would be the destruction of the environment, of our capacity, of our ability to sustain life for it, not just for the two-legged, but for everything that's needed to keep the system going. Yes, it all goes together indeed. And uh, I, I was, um, I'm so struck by your couple of references to your grandfather and the notion of the intergenerational knowledge transfer is so important. Of course, you've got with you in your studio a handful of students with whom you're sharing some of this information and wisdom and uh, was hoping we could uh, do a quick introduction uh, so that our um, audience has a chance to get a sense of who these uh, young adults are that you're working with. Absolutely. I'm going to give them a chance to speak for themselves. I just uh, want to set it up by saying this is uh, the first core group here doing a study program called the Introduction to Community Media, where uh, our community participants who run our media pieces and enable our networking to happen and work with the Indigenous Phonology Network and the National Phonology Network and the Climate Science Centers, uh, trying to encourage young people to do citizen science and communicate uh, with each other using technologies that they're very familiar with. And so with no further ado, take it away and introduce the students, let them introduce themselves. They've been, by the way, they just met. Hello, I'm uh, Desi from Oahu, by the way of Japan. Um, I'm Sierra from Louisiana, and I'm part of the Kapatsapat uh, Ishak Tuata tribe. Hey everyone, I'm Devin 
I'm the future chief of the Grand Caillou Dulac Band of Biloxi Chittimacha Choctaw. Hello, I'm Dalbert Nakan. I'm junior chief of uh, the band of Isles of Jean Charles, Biloxi Chittimacha and Choctaw. So these have uh, have come here and met and joined together. I want to give them a chance to give you an idea of what it is they've been up to and what it is we have them doing. Well, we've been doing uh, media work, um, very guerrilla, you know, very quick, getting the point across of what we want to um, voice in our community. And we've been learning that from Kalani, as well as um, other media experts that we've been working with. And it's uh, basically a two-week crash course. Wonderful. Yeah, it's been very magical. And uh, it's been quick, too. We've been going out in the field, learning to shoot quick video, cut, edit, you know, get a product out there as quick as you can and it's been really amazing what we can learn in two weeks compared to maybe a six-month audio and video class it's, it's been pretty incredible especially in the variety of forms of use use cell phones anything that's basically on hand so, so in the heat of the moment we're able to record and capture the event as ordained instead of like Where's my stuff? Let me go to my car. <laughs> and we can, we can just go and record for the event in time. Yeah, it's been pretty great. We've been learning this uh, kind of new style. You go in, you capture the moment, you get the message, and then you come back and you slice it together and you get your message out there as quick and concise as possible. And the best part is Oh, sorry. Go ahead, go ahead. Um, the best Never hold it. Never apologize. I said, girl, never apologize for speaking. Just bust your way in, baby. Um, the best part is how we all didn't know each other, and then we came together and worked as a team to create all this different stuff. Yo. So I think that's pretty awesome. Yeah, that trust, trust the female to be the one concerned with teamwork and capacity right. building right. together, right? And, but... I love the messaging and the fact that uh, they send us the best and the brightest. Uh, we like to think of ourselves as an organization that trains trainers to go back out to community and have the impacts we hope for when we design the learning. Um, are we gonna make mistakes every time? You know, uh, is that gonna stop us? Probably not. Right. Beautiful. Well, I'm so excited to to be connected with all of you and hope that uh, each of you will engage with our Why on Earth community ambassadors and, and share the media that you're developing in your communities um, with the broader network of folks that we're working with through Why on Earth. And uh, it's such a joy to meet each of you and be connected. I, I should mention for our viewers and listeners that uh, if you're tuning into the podcast, um, you can go to whyonearth.org and check out some of our other recordings on the community page. That's whyonearth.org slash community. Uh, also, if you'd like to, you can use the word podcast as a coupon code to get some of our audiobook and ebook products at uh, nice discounts at whyonearth.org market slash market. Um, you know, this notion of being able to produce and share uh, media quickly through our networks is so important with our ambassadors. One of our mantras is document and celebrate, document and celebrate, document and celebrate. And this is how we help to 
share the good wisdom, the good acts that we're able to perform in our communities in very simple ways. And uh, it's such a joy to see that network continuing to grow and get further activated and uh, really cross-pollinated through these kinds of uh, discussions. I, I wanted to read a passage, uh, Kalani, from uh, Why on Earth? And, you know, when, when it was uh, being written, which took quite a while, it's 33 chapters, it became very clear that uh, the place to begin was with a chapter called Place. And our connection to place is so important, and we have so many different cultural ways of, of doing this. And I was so uh, delighted and, and overjoyed and humbled when I came across something you said, uh, which I'll quote here. You said, everyone on this planet is indigenous. To Venus, we all look like one family. Imagine what we look like to Andromeda, like siblings. Perhaps the problem is that we see the world around us as resources rather than relationships. If we were to view all the other life in this water bubble as family, we might change the way we operate with our models of commerce. So I say, go forth, spread the word, everyone on this planet is indigenous. It's so beautiful, Kalani. How can you... Uh, uh, expand on that for us today it would be uh, great you know i learned pretty much everything i needed to know from my grandfather sometime between seven and 14 and uh you know he says to me one day when i'm about 11 and i was having a hard time i got sent to a very fancy uh, boarding school with the uh, Folks not from my village. You know, it's a, that's one way to put it. You know, thank you, affirmative action. So uh, I was having a hard time adjusting, and he said to me, he says, boy, there's only two kinds of people in the world. He says, that's a malahini, which is what we call tourists or a stranger, or a kama'aina. So... Lihi in Hawaiian means little or short. So ma-lihi-ni means somebody who's been here for a short period of time. And then kama in Hawaiian means to understand. And aina means in the ancient Polynesian family. But in Hawaiian, it means land or the food that feeds you. So your agriculture, your garden. So kama aina, to understand the land around you, what feeds you. So my grandfather said, there's only two kinds of people in the world. You're either malahini, you're a stranger, you just got there and you don't know what's going on. Or you're a kama aina, and you've been there for a little while, and you know what's going on. So he says to me, only two kinds of people in the world, boy, and you're both of them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right? Just depends on where you're standing. Right. Just depends on your perspective. Are you there for a long time? You understand what's going on, or did you just show up? So, in some sense, when we make that journey down the vaginal canal and we pop out, 
we're the ultimate Malahini, right? I mean, we just showed up. We're not really sure what's going on. The arms and legs don't quite move yet. Not quite the right size. Sometimes I wonder if human beings aren't actually marsupials. We finish up outside the body, right? Become these, we come out as a larva and then we become these 15, 20 years go by and we finally reach this adult stage where we can participate in this sapient way. Now, uh, all that being said, I still believe that each one of us is having the same human experience as my grandfather tried to point out to me. We're both of them. We're strangers. We're the familiar. You know, we're the particle. We're the wave. We're the great individual with the great generalization. You know, it's, it's really hard to, to think about how we could do anything other than generalize, right? If each of us has the same unique property that creation granted a snowflake or a leaf or a grain of sand, if we have that same property value of being one-off, each other, even as twins, same DNA. But if we commit a murder, if you don't find a fingerprint, you can't tell which one of us did it. We're all individually marked, right? If, if we're that collection of individuals, then how could we say anything specific about any one of us? We'd always be one off. The most we could do is make sweeping generalizations about everything and then believe none of it. Because none of it would be true, right? We would be so specifically unique if you didn't understand our unique circumstances, our personality, our preferences, our socioeconomic station, our religious upbringing, the framework under which we see our cosmological connection. You would not, in fact, be able to determine how we would react, how we would behave. In light of this kind of awareness, all I can do is treat all of life with the same respect and reverence that I would treat anything I loved greatly, particularly myself. You know, so call me selfish but I think I'm going to go with compassion and understanding. Beautiful. Amen. Aho to that. Love and compassion, right? Comes down to that in such a simple and profound way. Yeah, it's, uh, it's not, it's weird. It's not rocket science. Right. <laughs> it's, it's more like sex education. Yeah. You know, or, or something else. It's the ability for us to, sit with a friend, pick the lice off their back, have a quiet afternoon of hors d'oeuvres and community. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, let me ask you in, in the, the last few minutes we have together here, um, I know you're doing some work on the doctrine of discovery. And uh, this is an important uh, effort that I know some of our other brothers and sisters around the world are working on. If, uh, if you could share with our audience briefly what it is and what's happening and where we might be heading with relational doctrine, et cetera, 
it would be great to, I think, share that with some of our audience. Yeah, we, uh, I, I, I wish I'd prep better and had some slides available or a Prezi that we could show, but, you know, just extemporaneously, we've been having this discussion in native country for some time now, and uh, along with several other cohorts, uh, Daniel Wildcat and Haskell and, um, you know, Bull Bennett and Bob Goff and quite a few others, um, even up at uh, Dartmouth, Orrin Lyons came over. We had this discussion with the IPCCWG, the Indigenous Peoples Climate Change Working Group. The Doctrine of Discovery, which I consider to be an erroneous document uh, created to lever or lever economic and uh, unjust racial superiority claims you know, to proffer a dominant narrative that profited just a small slice of humanity. Now, this erroneous document is still the basis for land court decisions today, right? And there seems to be pushback around this idea that we could deconstruct um, colonial and imperialist ownership of the globe, as it were. But in fact, those notions, and rightly so, are being challenged every day, right? In world court, in the United Nations, heck, they're being challenged in the fourth grade in the town right up the street here. You know, the notion that Christopher Columbus discovered America is like saying James Cook discovered Hawaii. Right. Uh, apparently, both of these lands were uninhabited. Right. Right. When the guys showed up, when they so we started uh, investigating this idea that what if Christopher Columbus had actually recognized this relationship with the Arawaks, done proper protocol, and engaged with them as if they were other human beings rather than being sanctified by the church, which was the power authority at the time, to treat these people as non-humans if they were not Christian and worshiping the same God that they were worshiping in either France, Italy, or Austria at the time. So we know it's erroneous, and yet our legal court documents are still operating under this basis. So there are many legal challenges, I think, coming up now and legal arguments regarding this. But my interest was in the moral fabric. How do you find a solution to what some people might term an unwritable wrong? How do we address these intractable social injustices in a way that looks like we can construct a path forward that uh, graces all sides with dignity and yet achieves a sustainable balance. Because as it stands now, these land ownership laws, in fact, threaten the very existence, I believe, of life on the planet. Um, of course, I'm predisposed to that because I'm Hawaiian, and our Constitution in 1854 declared that 
all lands were owned by the creator. And so humans could only steward a piece of land and there could be no private land ownership, which of course, don't tell anybody, but it led to American sugar businessmen and missionaries illegally taking over the country and the U.S. moving in and making us a state. So, yeah, uh, I think we've been concentrating on this idea that our commerce models and our ideas of privatized ownership will, in fact, threaten our larger closed loop system that we call the atmosphere, the planet, and we metaphorically refer to as the canoe from time to time. And so I think as participants in the sort of the play of life, we've reached that moment in act three where we have to come to terms with the fact that the play may come to a very bad ending if we don't have some rewrites. Hey, listen, even the best musical, right? Even Hamilton went and played Boston for a couple of weeks first to get it right before coming to Manhattan, right? So I get it. As human beings, we've been falling down a bit, but I'm not ready to give up. And I think we can uh, adjust our sails, match the wind, clear the reef, make it to that shore. All we got to do is get everybody to the table, get everybody working together. It's that not is, rocket science. That is so beautiful, Kalani. And, uh, you know, we'll have to uh, wrap up here in just a minute. But you, you have uh, shared so much with us today. It's Wonderful meeting some of your students as well. I hope we'll all uh, be connected and in touch. Thank you so much for sharing. Hope, hope we'll be uh, connected going forward. And, um, you know, I, I'm reminded with the comments you all are making around the rapid utilization of global communication technology. I'm reminded of this really powerful essay I came across as a student called The Meta-Industrial Village, uh, written by William Irwin Thompson back in the 70s. And he was anticipating a future where, on the one hand, we were united globally through the power of communication technology that really, over time, would enhance our civic institutions, our abilities to uh, exercise dignity and sovereignty and liberty and then also in parallel, our communities would choose to relocalize, re-consecrate, re-engage in that relationship with soil and water and the localities of living ecology. And it strikes me that we live now in the time where that is potentially exactly what's playing out. Of course, uh, we have a lot of challenges. There's a lot of work to do. Uh, but I am so heartened knowing, Kalani, that you're doing the work you're doing, that your students are doing the work that they're doing, and that more and more and more of us are recognizing we're all in this uh, great canoe together, and uh, we're all creating a future together. No, absolutely. You know, I, uh, to close it off, I've, I've been having some dreams about this doctrine of relationship. You know, what if... Using the medicine wheel, 
and the four directions? What if the doctrine of discovery is simply the doctrine of the north, of the element of air, an ancestral, you know, older religious doctrine that we know now to be erroneous? And the doctrine of the east, you know, is the doctrine of creation. And the doctrine of the south, in direct opposition to the doctrine of discovery, might be the doctrine, you know, of of relationship, of protocol, of recognition, you know, that says we are all engaged in this human activity. And the doctrine of the West would be the doctrine of separation. So in the doctrine of East, the feminine, the creation, the verdant, the growing, in the West, the sunset, the fire, the element of destruction, the masculine, the rebirth, right? Regeneration is happening through the fire. So the east is the element of earth. The south is the element of water. You know, the thing that connects all of life that is the doctrine of recognition. And then the west is the doctrine of separation. Something, I think, as a society, we do not do well. You know, we, we tend to take our toys with us on this endless march to an ivory tower. You know, we, we bury ourselves with the gold. It's like king of the hill, right? But really, the older traditions understand that the children learn from their parents, and the parents learn from the elders, and the elders learn from the children who have just recently come from the spirit world. And so have come with these tools ingrained in their DNA, these things that they need to survive. What they might lack is the wisdom on how to apply those tools, which is why this connectivity of the creation of youth, the operational capacity of parenthood, and the wisdom of eldership, they're all three needed to propel the human experience long. So really the connection, the web of relationship between these three generations is more important than what's actually passing along that web. You know, that the, the pathway remains intact. The type of information that moves along the pathway, it differs by region, by culture, by club. But when we're looking at the culture of modernity, dismantling this intergenerational connectivity and us falling into a nuclear family, a society that no longer experiences five generations, but only two generations at best, we've undercut our capacity to adapt and survive to the changes that necessarily occur to our canoe. Beautiful. Well, may we reestablish and heal these relationships as we're healing our intercultural relationships, as we're healing our relationships with our living planet. And Kalani, thank you so much for being with us today. It's such an honor. And uh, I very much look forward to staying in touch and uh, many blessings to you, your students, and uh, your community. Thank you. Thank you, Aaron, and thanks for all the great work you're doing. We really appreciate it. You bet, brother. Take care.